Welcome to Army of Crime. I am your co-host, Matt, and I'm here with my co-host, Dustin. I am here as well. And this episode, we are talking about Batman Ego by Darwin Cook in various capacities um, and the film Bitter Victory. That information is all correct. So we'll start with Batman Ego, I suppose. The thing we're looking at here is called Batman Ego and Other Tales. And it is essentially the collection of Batman stories or Batman affiliated stories, let's call them, uh, created by Darwin Cook. So some of these stories are written and drawn by Darwin Cook. Some of them are written by Darwin Cook, drawn by other people. And one of them, I believe, has Darwin Cook art and written by someone else. So it's a little bit of a grab bag. And there are some different types of stories in here um the title story is just called ego and is essentially batman having a psychotic break of some kind it's a very it's a story very much um that was in vogue at a time the idea of trying to make batman be like this hyper psychologically complex character and it plays with the idea that that batman has some kind of negative influence on gotham city right that the villains are all just sort of reacting to him. And I think this is an idea that came into vogue kind of in the 90s. Um, I know Legends of the Dark Knight did some things with this. Um, Alan Grant did some things with this on his run, too, uh, with the character Anarchy. Yeah, and for those who are not familiar with with him, I would just say that Darwin Cook is sort of well-known for a style of drawing that has this kind of like retro 50s throwback look. It kind of looks a lot like, like maybe you could compare it to the look for like Batman the Animated Series or like the old Superman, like Fleischer cartoons. It has this very sleek retro, like 50s vibe to it. Yeah. So that, so that, and he, most of the stories in here are drawn by him. So that kind of like aesthetic is sort of the unifying principle here. And that's kind of like his trademark style. But yes, Batman Ego is basically a story where Batman feels like he has failed after some case that goes wrong. And he has a, like you said, a psychotic break. And the comic is kind of framed around him arguing with himself being Bruce Wayne and then this like sort of malevolent demonic Batman figure who's sort of like berating him for being kind of like weak or ineffectual or whatever. Yeah. And you mentioned the art, of course, Darwin Cook's art. And this is a not a controversial opinion in the slightest. And I'm not going to put forward a hot take on you. It is pretty great right the literally the opening panel of ego is a close-up of the word no and then it slowly zooms out so you can see that you're actually standing on a sign or batman standing on a sign that says you are now leaving gotham so it starts with the word no and then it says it zooms out a little and you can see it kind of says are not gotham or are now gotham and then it zooms out more in the first I thought it was going to say you are now entering Gotham and it keeps zooming out and it says you are now leaving Gotham and you see Batman standing on the sign and then you get like a reaction shot from a stone angel statue 
that's next to him. What a great framing. And you see the specter, the overview of kind of a whole city shot. Um, and it does, it is reminiscent of Batman the Animated Series. You've got like the blimps and like the ships floating in the harbor thing. And it has this, like you mentioned, kind of a sleek uh, neo-noir kind of vibe. What did you think of Batman Ego? I mean, the art is great. We could talk about the art. What did you think of the of the story, I guess? I liked it. I thought that it was uh, pretty effective. I mean, you know, in the introduction, he kind of talks about how, you know, trying to do sort of a new spin on Batman. And I don't know if this really counts as a new spin or not, but like, obviously there's been a million and one in different interpretations of Batman. So I wasn't sure whether like Batman arguing with himself was really enough to sustain an entire issue. But overall I thought it worked. I loved how he drew the demonic like Batman figure where he's like, 10 feet tall and it's just this like black mass of a cape and a cowl plus like teeth for some yeah. reason like he has this mouthful of like glowing teeth which looks really creepy um you and know his but first line is you think you know pain you coward i will show you pain so this is very much like a grim like i think literally the subtitle is a psychotic slide into the heart of darkness this is this is meant to be like we're going straight into the into the, the the psyche of a of a tortured individual thing. The point where the Batman demon character like appears in real life, so to speak, Bruce Wayne says, My God, and then Batman says, Perhaps, but lately you've been lacking faith. Yeah. And I so, think these Batman stories, there's very much a time of, of when these were in vogue too. Um because it reminds me there's a Batman Legends of the Dark Knight comic where he says something like, I am the king of hell or something. Um, and I suppose we could trace it all maybe back to Frank Miller. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you could, I guess. But I uh, overall thought that it that it was like pretty good. I liked it. You know, I'm not sure that it really brings anything necessarily new to the table. But as just like a standalone like Batman one shot, um, I thought it was pretty dang good. Yeah, I like the idea of Batman just wrestling with his inner demons. Essentially, that's what it is. It's just Batman arguing with himself. I think it works. And they, they talk up the idea of Batman creating his own villains. And that's kind of meta. And you could probably make the argument for a lot of superheroes. And on some level, they're all tied into the same concepts. Um, and he asks him, like, why don't you just kill the Joker? And he tries to come up with a reason. And, you know, the ultimate reason is he can't kill the Joker because they want to use the Joker in other stories. So they're just stuck together. The same reason, you know, Superman doesn't cryogenically freeze Lex Luthor just to keep him out of trouble or something. So it's kind of meta and there really isn't a great answer because the answer is because they're fictional characters. But it is interesting. He does come up with a reason. I mean, he comes up with a coherent system, a coherent value system. There's another great panel, too, of Batman literally inside the Bat Demon's mouth. Yeah, there's a lot of great visual touches in here. Like, there's a part where it kind of flashes back to when he was a kid and you have this, like, tall like window that's very like art deco in this splash page of like a old-fashioned like living room kind of with that bruce wayne and the bat demon kind of floating in the air and then this like huge christmas tree and these huge like windows which look superb and then there's another panel there's like later there's a panel where there's a uh, 
giant flaming skeletal hand like over Gotham City. And then there's the one where like Batman is like drowning under like an ocean of skulls. Charles Dickens' Ghost of Christmas Future, Ghost of Christmas Past thing going on. Yeah. And he does another great thing of splitting a panel in half and having both sides be the same part of like a face. Right. But you get half on one side, half on the other. So he'll do like two face Harvey Dent on one side, two face on the other. Um, Zorro on one side, Zorro, Secret Identity, Don Diego on the other side. And it's like a split uh, portrait. But he does a lot of interesting things with just the, the symbolism of, of Bruce Wayne wrestling with his demons. Yeah. And then ultimately what uh, Bruce Wayne decides to do is basically just rather than get rid of Batman and then lose his entire personality and lose his entire life. He basically just uh, decides to live on in this like self-induced sort of split personality kind of. Yeah, just to try and make some kind of compromise with it. Yeah, I mean, it's not like maybe the world's most startlingly, like I said, startlingly um, original take on Batman, but yeah, it, it works really well overall. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's a smart story overall. Um, there's a few short ones in here. Should we talk about Selena's Big Gore, which is a completely unrelated Catwoman story written and illustrated by Darwin Cook? Yeah, I actually thought that this was even better than Batman Ego. Like, this is kind of the highlight of this book for me. Um, it's a story where basically, yeah, it just stars Selena Kyle, Catwoman. And it's just about her, like, putting together and pulling off this massive heist of stealing a bunch of diamonds from the mob that are transporting them on this train. I actually would probably agree with you that Selena's big score is the highlight of this. And I actually had read this before, I think, um, but it had been a while. And it definitely has this caper vibe. It's like a crime thriller. Um, he still has that great neo-noir art. It's more realistic. It doesn't have quite have the you know animated series vibe to it. But... Great use of like shadows and like locations. Um, there's a great shot of her just like lounging on a desk in a sort of femme fatale pose, but it is more realistic than the style he uses in Ego. But it definitely fits the whole like crime heist movie thing that he's going for. Yeah, it's yeah, it's less of a superhero comic and more of just like a crime comic. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I'm a big fan of the Richard Stark uh, Parker book series of like uh, crime novels that are all about heists. And Darwin Cook himself later adapted a bunch of those novels into comic book form. But this comic, and he mentions this in the introduction, is very much like uh, directly inspired by those books to the point where he has a character in here who is basically like the main character from those books but instead of parker his name is stark named after the author of yeah. those books uh richard stark who was actually donald westlake and richard stark was a pen name but um but anyway so as a big fan of those kind of like hard-boiled heist novels like i really um dug the hard-boiled heist vibe on this and it kind of um it splits attention between all these sorts of characters as they're planning the heist and putting the crew together and like making the plan and stuff and then of course things go awry as they uh, always do but yeah. overall um yeah like it's selena kyle and then there's this old 
like old hand at the uh, ice business named Stark, who's inspired by, like I said, by Parker. And then there's like another character whose name I believe is Jeff. And and then there's a few other like uh, smaller characters. But yeah, so it kind of splits attention between this cast of characters as they all are like planning um, this heist. And yeah, yeah. Over, overall, it's I really dug Selena's biggest score. I think it was a heck of a lot of fun. Is it basically, so not having read them, is it basically like a Parker novel crossed over with Catwoman? I mean, yeah, more or less is, is kind of like how it how it reads. Obviously, like, you know, to get onto a train in this story, they have like a rocket that's like that they ride on the uh, train yeah. tracks. Yeah. So, you know, those kind of like touches are maybe more Catwoman-y. But yeah, overall, I mean, that's kind of like how it plays. And then we should mention, too, that it also has the character of uh, Slam Bradley. Yeah. Who is an old PI character invented by uh, Jerry Schuster and Joel Siegel from way back in the day, who I think had become kind of a regular cast member in Catwoman's ongoing series. Yeah, and it switches between characters and they have different sort of voices. And I think that works great. There's a lot of great um, just like shots of people standing around in the rain and you've got the street lights behind them and they're smoking the cigarette and everything. Um, he does a great thing too with once you actually get into the heist in the very last issue, I think there's like four or five pages that are all double page splashes of them trying to get on the train and everything. Yeah, and that's kind of like a nice sort of comic booky touch of something that you can only really do in a comic book to sort of highlight the intensity of this, you know, switching from like normal life, the planning to the score itself with everything as heightened. It's like putting it in widescreen. Yeah. Kind of like switching from like full frame to like widescreen. Yeah. It's, it's uh, great. And like you said, I mean, there's so many like, the whole thing is just like a beautiful piece of work. And, you know, one thing that I do like is the fact that Catwoman being a villain, I mean, in the in the context of like a high story, obviously you don't expect the main character to have like a change of heart or like in uh, wrestling parlance at face turn. But in the context of like a superhero story, you always kind of, I don't know, expect that when you have like a sort of morally ambiguous character, they can never like really commit to being fully bad. But I kind of like the fact that since Catwoman is sort of canonically a villain that you get to just like let her have be, let, just let her be like an amoral criminal figure. Yeah. You know, in some ways she's probably more moral than some of the other characters. But she doesn't change. She's just kind of who she is. Yeah, like, it, it's not like Batman undercover pulling a heist and then he has to, like... Find a know, way to foil it somehow at the end or something. And, th and then, like, call the cops or something. It just, you know... And like I said, that's not really anything different for, like, a heist story, but for, like, a kind of superhero, hybrid superhero crime comic, I think it's nice that you get the sort of criminal villain character that just gets to like be true to their own character. I'm not like a Catwoman person, quote unquote, but it seems like this is a much more interesting thing to do with her. Cause I know they've put her in the justice league of America. She was almost going to marry Batman recently. I feel like this is a more interesting thing to do with Catwoman. Well, I know that there was a long running Catwoman uh, solo comic series that I believe was started out by 
Ed Brubaker writing it and Darwin Cook drawing it that I think this is sort of in line with. But I haven't yeah. read it. But now I kind of want to because I hadn't read Selena's big score before, but I really dug it. So do you want to talk at all about any of the other like shorter stories in here? Um, the the first shorter one, the one that's in black and white, which is called Here There Be Monsters. Here Be Monsters is actually kind of an interesting little backup because there's a villain in it that's basically telling Batman that he's the one that ruins Gotham City. Um, and then she tries to drive him insane. Is that the one with uh, Madame X? Yeah, from Batman Black and White. Yeah, yeah, that was nice. But the villain is just kind of like this, basically like a woman version of Two-Face, where she, her face is like really... She looks like Tally Al Ghul in the animated show. Tally Al Ghul always has this thing where she somehow has half of her hair covering the other half of her face somehow. And I don't know how you could ever actually. It's the Veronica Lake look, the peekaboo oh, haircut. Yeah, she has that, So, which is sort of like how Tally Al Ghul always looks in the animated show. Yeah. So I would say overall, I mean, Batman Ego is a solid collection. It is sort of scattershot. Admittedly, it's only thing uniting it is Darwin Cook's art, but Darwin Cook's art is tremendous and great in all sorts of ways. So overall, it's a strong collection. Yeah, definitely. So, Matthew, our next uh, item that we were going to discuss is the motion picture Bitter Victory from 1957, uh, directed by Nicholas Ray. And the reason why I had been kind of like interested in this title was because of the director. I'm a big uh, Nicholas Ray fan, and he's done a number of really classic films. And this is maybe kind of lower on his uh, filmography is not as well known, but it is a war movie set in World War II about this team of British commandos who have this kind of undercover mission to steal these documents in North Africa from like a German command. And then they escape into the desert to get picked up by the uh, British forces. But the main focus of the film is sort of the relationship between these two men, uh, played by Richard Burton and Kurt Jurgens, uh, named Leith and Brand. And Brand is the commanding officer, and his wife was at the base before they left. And we, the viewer, and Brand himself kind of begin to realize that uh, Brand's wife Jane used to have a relationship with the other character, Captain Leith, played by Richard Burton. So then when they're, and that Brand is kind of jealous of the way his wife uh, reacts to Leith. So then when they're out in the desert, you know, in this life or death commando mission, you kind of have this sort of conflicted uh, vibe between these two men who is becomes kind of like a test of their like uh, insecurities and of their masculinity as they have to reckon with each other as they're trying to survive from the desert itself and from the Germans. So all that being said, Matt, what did you think of the motion picture Bitter Victory? 
overall, I found it interesting. I wasn't particularly blown away, but I did find it interesting. Uh, there's some nice cinematography on the desert landscapes and, you know, men staring into the distance, trying to figure out what to do next. The story relationship, the, the relationship there kind of kicks into high gear in the second half. And you get some interesting interactions there. You get some interesting dialogue, too. I, th- I thought it was overall it was an interesting movie. Um, you mentioned the cinematography, and this is an interesting uh, case in that it came out right in the time period where you had people shooting black and white cinemascope which I've always found to be a really fascinating look. So you have these like beautiful widescreen vistas composed in uh, crisp black and white. Though when I say beautiful, like much of the film is set out in the desert where the screen is not like, you know, necessarily populated with a lot of things. It, it becomes a very spare scene, if you will, of these uh, troops like trudging through the desert um, is much of the film. And I think, you know, you mentioned the relationship between the two men kind of kick, uh, kicks up into high gear in the second half. But there's an, a moment early on in their commando mission where the commanding officer, Brand, who up to this point has spent most of his military career sitting behind a desk, is supposed to kill the sentry, basically, like, come up behind a German sentry and stab him in the heart in cold blood. And he is, like, scared, kind of, and is shaking and is wavering. So the other man, Leith, like, has to do it for him. So then throughout the rest of the mission, there's kind of this idea that's floating in the background of once they get back to base, is Leith going to expose Brand as a coward and his brand going to allow him to do that, knowing that there's this relationship between his wife and the other guy. So then Leith begins to suspect that brand is trying to kill him or is going to get, get him killed on purpose to make sure that doesn't happen. And as the film went on, I kind of did get into that. And there's a moment later that I guess I won't spoil, but yeah, it starts to get more explicit as to whether Brand is going to kill or let this other guy be killed in order to protect his own reputation as a military man and in order to not lose favor in the eyes of his wife and to not allow this guy who's sort of like a rival for his wife's affection, you know, go back and tell everyone that he's kind of a coward. It's definitely the part I find the most interesting uh there was also some good imagery when they're in the old ruin in the desert they come to i mean those are some good shots where they're like trudging through the landscapes that's really only in the second half of the movie but i do think the sort of questions it raises are the most interesting part of it for me and it gets into this weird area where they're talking about the ethics of warfare which all feels very futile right because on some level, you know, during a war, he doesn't want to stab the sentry in the back. That's a perfectly normal human response, I think, to not want to stab some dude, right? You or I would probably not be capable of just stabbing some guy, you know, unless it was under some kind of real extreme circumstance. But in wartime, that's bad, right? You're not, let's say, quote-unquote, 
a real man if you can't stab someone. Yeah. Um, you know, even though that would make you a lunatic in real life. And it's they're trying to, like, hash out the ethics in a wartime situation, which is always a lot of self-serving and is kind of all gobbledygook on some level. And Leith seems to kind of recognize that. And he recognizes that it's all sort of absurd. And Brandt is trying to stick to the rule book, I guess you would say. Yeah, there's a, a line earlier in the film where his men kind of like make fun of him for being like a real um, stickler for the rules. And his character is kind of like the career army man who's never had action. So he's trying to like maintain this kind of like carefully built moral framework, you know, of what is morally allowed in war and out of war and, you know, how a person should carry themselves, whereas the other guy is kind of the just more practical realist about the situation. Yeah, and then the whole thing end up ends up becoming kind of a conflict between their, like, masculinity and how their masculinity is imperiled by this um, situation. To tie into the comic book we read, their egos are sort of bumping into each other. Yeah. And another thing that they bring up is how you should treat prisoners. And in warfare, of course, you know, that's a weird thing. Do they, they're trudging through the desert. Do they take all the prisoners with them? What do you do with prisoners? I don't want to give away like a bunch of the story necessarily, but that's one of the issues that raised is what do you do with prisoners? Um, and, you know, in the, Brant wants to leave somebody behind to like watch the prisoners. And this is probably, I would assume, a standard procedure. But on some level, as some of the other characters point out, it's sort of absurd because they're just going to die. And But is it right to just shoot them? You just have yeah. to have a guy stand there and wait for them to die and then say, okay, that's, so, that's sorted now, and then leave. And it's one of those weird situations that doesn't really make sense. There's an absurdity to it. Yeah, I think the brand character is basically you know, his actions kind of highlight the absurdity of the way that he follows the rules in a way that, like, is technically correct, but in an actual life-or-death situation often seems extremely impractical and also leads the other guy to think that he's intentionally trying to get him killed. It makes me think of these studies that have been done that showed, I think, something like 2% of Allied troops in World War II actually fired at the enemy with the intent of killing them. Now, when they say allied troops, I assume they're not including Russians. So it's probably just American and English soldiers. So most people don't really want to kill, even in a wartime situation. They'll trudge along with their weapon and, you know, run into combat situation, but they don't really want to kill someone else. And actually, I think that number has gone up since then um, due to the different ways they condition soldiers. But yeah, in World War II, most people didn't really shoot anyone. So I don't think we should throw Brandt under the bus for not wanting to stab someone. He probably just wasn't ready for it. But on the other hand, we could point out that it is his job, and he went into the thing knowing that's what he was going to have to do. And I mean, in this, the context of this film is a little different because they're like on a commando raid. Right. These are not average guys. They're all supposed to be commandos. And he's sort of the, the desk-bound guy who knows the intel enough that he has to go with. Yeah, and he just has, like, kind of a... Um, in, in the moment, he 
just kind of like waivers. She reminded me of a Hitchcock movie because they're always talking about documents. They got to get these documents. Oh, it's yeah. Like Mac- the MacGuffin in, a, in the classic MacGuffin fashion. We're never told really what the purpose of these documents are. But yes, it's all about the documents and then getting the documents home. And, you know, as a MacGuffin, it's really just a, a reason to get these guys into the desert and then to put these two men up against each other. Very specifically men, because it's all coded around their, you know, their self-built masculine facades, if you will. Right. Which kind of surprised me a little bit, just because, are you familiar with um, Nicholas Ray? I really am not, no. Well, he, I think a lot of his best films, like Rebel Without a Cause or Johnny Guitar, are kind of known for this sort of broad expressionism. And he didn't exclusively work in that mode. And in a war movie, I kind of expected this to be more of that kind of like broad expressionism. And there are some um, elements of that, but this is, um, for the most part, it's it's more of like a grounded like life or death struggle. And I mean, some of the dialogue between the men is more like operatic when they're debating like the morality of killing and the morality of war. But I was kind of expecting more of that like uh, larger than life Nicholas Ray expressionism. Though one moment I thought where he leaned into that really well in kind of an ironic way was when the Leith character was carrying a wounded man up a sand dune and then the music kicks up into high gear to kind of tell us that this is a really heroic action like he's getting like the hero swell of music and then by the time he gets to the top of the sand dune the guy is dead yeah and the, gu- and the guy is basically cursing him for carrying him because he wants leith to just shoot him and get it over with and Leith is like gonna do the heroic thing and carry him, but then and then he gets the swell of music, and then like by the time he trudges to the top of the sand dune, the guy is already dead. Yeah, it's definitely a reversal of like yeah. a little hero of like a little hero narrative embedded in the story. And you know, it's interesting. Um, you're talking about Nicholas Ray as an expressionist, and the the technical parts of this I didn't feel were. I mean, am I wrong or not? Tremendously strong. I feel like I use the word tremendous a lot. There's some nice imagery of like the desert and you get some good cinematography. I think there, I think a lot of it though, at the beginning, they're just like in an army base and it's not really that interesting. Am I, am I wrong? I would say that you're probably wrong, but okay. I, I mean, I get what you're saying in terms of like, it's not, you know, like bravura, like show offy kind of filmmaking and maybe show off. is not the right word, but in some of his other films, um, he would definitely lean more into this like over the top kind of like big emotional uh, vibes, even for just people standing around in rooms talking. And that is not really as much kind of the mode that this film operates in. Like you said, at the beginning, it starts out in the arm in this army base, and it is definitely not like an operatic like life or death stakes at the beginning. It's really just introducing you to the relationship between these two men and the one woman, Jane Brand. But I mean, I would not say that it's weak in, a, in any kind of like uh, technical or directing aspect. I just think it's he's setting it up in a kind of like a more workman like vein, which workman does not really seem 
I think, apt either, but he's just not going for, like, the bravura style. And he really doesn't, uh, even when they get out into the desert, it's kind of, you know, kept under wraps for the most part and just focusing on the dynamic between these two characters. But I wouldn't say that it's, you know, weak at all. It's just more uh, subtle, I guess. In my opinion. I will accept that. Perhaps you are correct. Well, I usually am. So it sounds like I was probably higher on a bitter victory than you were, though I definitely would not put this up with some of Nicholas Ray's best films, but I did uh, enjoy it. So, uh, Mr. Mr. Matthew. Yes, that is me. Do you have any, uh, do you have a recommendation for this week? I'm going to recommend something that crosses back into episode seven, which was about the spirit. Uh, Darwin Cook has a run on the spirit. And I bet you're thinking to yourself, hey, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Because if you've seen Darwin Cook's art uh, and you know anything about Will Eisner's The Spirit, those two would seem like they would go together pretty well, wouldn't they, Dustin? Yeah, that does seem like a good fit. Yeah, so Darwin Cook had a run on the spirit. This is in the, so the spirit has changed hands a couple times. And this is when, as I am recording this, I think the spirit is owned by Dynamite Entertainment, maybe? But there was a period where the spirit was owned by DC. And they had a spirit series. They had a spirit and Batman meet comic. Um, So this is when the spirit jumped over to DC. And I think they relaunched it once or twice and then sold the property off to Dynamite. Um, so yeah, the spirit by Darwin Cook, he had a, he had a good run on the spirit and it was just a great match for everything. The art style, um, the stories were cool. Uh, there's a story, it has zombies in it and you know, the spirit does delve into sci-fi sometimes and it works. Um, and he actually, he has the character of Ebony White, not as being a super racist character as he was, as we discussed in the episode, uh, back when Will Eisner was drawing the character. So that would be my recommendation, uh, The Spirit by Darwin Cook. Can I ask you some questions about this? Yes. So what does he do with the character of Ebony White, then, that's different than what Will Eisner did? Okay, so he he seems to make a decision to try and keep the role in the story as the same. He's not really comic relief anymore. He is a young African-American man who is an unauthorized or like a like a bootleg taxi driver who is friends with the spirit. So he's still kind of a sidekick character. Um, He drives like a taxi cab, but he's only, I think he's like 15 or something. So he's not like legally allowed to drive a taxi cab and he like helps the spirit and he like drives him around and stuff. Okay. So he's a sidekick, but not, and I assume then not drawn in some kind of overtly racist way. Right, 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 right. So it's all very up and up. So are, does he, is this written and drawn by, Darwin Cook? It says, written by Darwin Cook and Jeff Loeb, art by Darwin Cook and Jay Bone, covers by Darwin Cook. So it is not a solo affair uh, just by him, but his fingerprints are all over it, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, it sounds like that the main reason to look into it would be to get uh, the Darwin Cook kind of vibe on there. Right. Or if you like the spirit. I mean, as we talked about in our spirit episode, the spirit is an interesting concept that you can tell all kinds of stories through. 
Um, and telling in them in a modern context, obviously you can ditch some of the problematic things and just have have a good time with it. Just have a good time. Have a have a good old time. So I'm gonna the, what I'm gonna recommend is, and I had kind of mentioned this before, but um, it's a novel series that I'm a big fan of called uh, Parker about this uh, criminal named Parker who uh, each novel in the series has him like pulling these heists and Selena's big score is you know by the introduction by darwin cook he cites this as an influence and there's a character in it like i said who's basically lifted from this series so this is a there's uh 24 novels in this series and they're all fairly like short reads like around like 200 pages and they started publishing in 1962 and went up until 2008 there was kind of like a big break in the middle there and then he came back and started doing it later and the first book in this series is called the hunter and you don't really have to read them in order but it doesn't hurt either as there are kind of threads that reappear in each one so that's a novel series of uh the parker series by richard stark um and then also the other thing is that darwin cook himself and i mentioned this too adapted these novels into comic book form so you have five uh, graphic novels written and drawn by Darwin Cook, adapting each adapting a Parker, a Richard Stark Parker novel. Um, so those are also uh, pretty phenomenal. And from reading Selena's big score, you can definitely see that not only is Darwin Cook a huge fan of those stories, but also his style, I think, is a pretty good complement to them. So that's the Parker novel series by Richard Stark and the Parker graphic novel series by Darwin Cook adapting Richard Stark's novels. Well, I guess that was another thrilling installment of Army of Crime. Yes. How do you feel? Yes, it was. How do you feel that that one went, Matt? Um, I felt it was I felt it was pretty good. You think we gave the people what they came here for? I hope so. Well, I hope so, too. And, I mean, if you think that we did or didn't, you could always find us and leave us a review and tell us that we're fantastic in uh, the iTunes or in the wherever you get your uh, podcast. Yes, I have a message to anyone who's listening to this. That's you, whoever you are you're doing chores right now or driving somewhere if you're driving somewhere you can wait till you arrive at your destination but whatever else you're doing you should definitely 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 give us five stars and whatever podcatcher you use you can find us on the website armyofcrime.com where we keep a master topic list of all the recommendations you can click through there um we do try and do a little bit of the legwork to try and help you point you in the direction of everything and you can yell at us on Twitter at Army of Crime is mine, uh, my handle, and Dustin's is Dustin at Dustin four 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 four. Yes, that's my terrible uh, Twitter username, which I got many years ago, and which, if I really cared, I would probably delete it and get something that is not stupid. But you know what? We live in a stupid world, so here we are. Remember, people, 
stay alive out there. No, I'm not going to cut it out. I'm going to leave it in so you're embarrassed.